This is a trigger warning from the legal department. Just reminding you that this shit is pretty heavy. And that's okay. Take a deep breath. Don't forget to hydrate. Wash your fucking hands. Good afternoon, friends. Welcome back to the Revenue Real Hotline. I'm your host, Amy Rahovchek, and it is with great pleasure that I introduce this conversation with a man that frankly needs no introduction. We get pretty real pretty fast in this conversation, and by we, I'm talking about myself mostly. For anybody that's been watching, Scott has almost single-handedly been producing content in support of those that are looking to transition into sales leadership. His latest book being The Modern VP Sales Playbook. And in many ways, this is like a feeder program for new VPs of sales or those that are already in a position of leadership but looking to level up their game. And frankly, he's the only one doing it. And so at least for me personally, to watch what he's doing and how he's doing it, it's caused a lot of soul searching on my side, which, you know, and what I mean by that is I've spent a decade now pretty committed to not being a sales manager or sales leader. And I'm pretty sure that my, my reasoning for doing so has been off. And with that, I'm going to stop sharing about what the episode is about because you guys can all listen for yourselves. I'm your host, Amy Rahovchek, and this is the Revenue Real Hotline. And with that, I give you the great Scott Lays. Amy. Amy. Welcome to the Revenue Real Hotline. I. It's funny, I was just talking about this with Mark Cosglow, that it's been fun to look at the calendar of guests and think about how I feel, really, in anticipation for each of these conversations. And I am—I don't think I've ever been more nervous or uncomfortable leading into a conversation than this one, but in the best possible way. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I suppose I should be flattered by that. I don't want you to be scared or nervous or whatever, but that's a good point actually about looking at your calendar and seeing who's on there for podcast recordings or just any meetings at all and being like, wow, I get to talk to these people and maybe learn something and network. Uh, That's a good way to frame it. So thanks for having me. Oh my gosh, it's my pleasure. I I don't know if you know this, but and I've mentioned it a couple times on the show, but I so I was raised by a salesperson turned broker, sales leader, whatever. And I when I was in grade school, I have two younger sisters, we're all like 18 months apart. My dad used to ask us when we felt uncomfortable that day. And the analogy that he used was butterflies in the stomach, which is obviously age and probably gender appropriate. And the, it wasn't even very unspoken that if we had not felt uncomfortable that day, then we had not grown. And so I learned from a very early time how to seek out those butterflies, but also the reverse is true that when I haven't had them, the argument there is that, that I haven't grown. And so I, when I talk about discomfort and when I talk about nerves, 
they're a very positive thing. And even just the idea of rowing through a conversation is just as, as great and as real and as impactful as it gets. And so all of those, that, that statement when you started is meant to convey both respect, but also appreciation for an opportunity to, you know, challenge myself and my own value judgments, which we'll get into in a second. So anyway, it's like that. (laughs) Okay. So Scott, have you listened to any of these episodes? Do you know what you've gotten yourself involved in? Listen to parts of two. I listen to Mercy's and Dewan's, but I tend to, I tend to just say yes and not ask a lot of questions and just throw myself into the deep end and figure out what I've gotten into you know, you later mean. on. Yeah, and I feel it- like I've done so many of these that I don't know what is new that somebody hasn't asked me yet or that I haven't gotten into. So I'm not too worried about it. Amy, I think I can handle whatever whatever you're about to throw at me. I think that is the understatement of the century, sir. And it's interesting that you chose Mercy and Duan. I almost want to go back to that and what. But anyways, okay, so let's get the business out of the way. The target audience is the experienced tech seller. The theme of the show, conversations about uncomfortable conversations and sales, of which I'm sure we have plenty to choose from. I, as you just finished your book, and I wrote down a bunch of things that we could possibly talk about. And what I, I'm going to read them back to you. And then essentially you choose where you would like to begin. Okay. I generally leave the last 10 minutes for the final two questions, which I'm not going to give you any heads up on because as to your point, I think you can handle it. And yeah. so I wrote down for you. So feeder program for sales VPs. Mm-hmm just like a machine of feeder programs for new and fresh blood, which is there's no one else doing it. Urgency versus legacy. And I think in legacy, I think that there's a a hyper focus on like the future, like what's, what are you leaving behind, but not enough emphasis on today. And part of leaving a, a legacy is being able to be present and show up in today and do the right things for those around you on a daily basis. And that's what yields legacy. And so the, that catch 22 there. I think that I wrote down coaching. Your dad was a soccer coach and I mercy touches on it. And it was something that Mark uh, Cosglow also touched on that's how we're raised has a big impact on how we approach this profession and to have a father as invested in coaching and growing teams and his own skills, obviously the masters in, in learning and learning theory as someone that has ADHD and had to learn how to teach yourself really early on. Also, if you heard the Mercy episode, maybe, uh, I don't know how far you got into it, but I, yeah, I didn't have a great deal of respect for the authority of the school district, right? A pipe bomb in front of your house at 3am in the morning, that, that'll do that for you. And But focusing on learning. And so now, even in sales enablement, you can spot those that understand the implications of learning and the variation in the same way that we all have different love languages, right? We all have different ways and, and styles of learning, whether it's writing, long form, audio, short form. So it, it varies drastically. But I can see that knowledge applied in everything that you do. So that I, that's something that's on the list. And then Scott, the biggest one, and if I'm being honest, probably why I was nervous is that I've had some really deep value judgments about sales leaders or sales bosses, which is something that I distinguish between 
and for good cause in most instances. But as I am looking at my birthday on Wednesday and the intention that I want to set for this year. Wait, can I pause for a second? Yeah. Are you aware that June 30th is also my birthday? No, I had no idea. Fact. We have the same birthday. Wow. (laughs) Okay, cancer. Okay, surfing. Okay, coaching and learning and yeah, mental health. Yeah. Okay. Did you hear Mercy? She called me out on because I push back on how I'm not nurturing and, and she doesn't, she, I'm not allowed to say that anymore. But anyway, so <laughs> I, I think I tend to get too emotionally invested, frankly, is, but also that's part of the hypersensitivity with that. Okay. So anyway, those are all things that I wrote down. And one final thought before we we get started and you choose where you'd like us to start When I think about the past couple of months or even the past year, and there was a point where I was, I really needed help with something. And I only could think of one person that was in a position to be able to help with that. And I sent a Hail Mary to you and you responded immediately and showed up for me in in the most beautiful way. And so I just wanted to give you a big public thank you for that. You have no idea what that meant to me. And you're the best. You're the best. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. I like the first and the last bullets in terms of things to touch upon. The last one, because it sounds like that's like the thing that you wanted to talk about the most. And that's the thing that makes you the most kind of nervous or whatever. And the first one, because, yeah. Yeah. And the first one, because how do I phrase it? Because I think that it doesn't exist. And, and I think that it's probably one of the things I'm most passionate about right now, just trying to help people who are in leadership be, become better sales leaders. And in turn, that helps the whole profession because shitty sales culture will disappear if there's more really good VPs of sales that are out there. And in particular, I think you know this, but I invest really heavily in like the the female friends that I have who are in sales leadership roles, trying to make sure that they're super successful and the same thing with underrepresented communities like lgbtq or african-americans and asian sales leaders all this kind of underrepresented stuff and there's a big difference between in my opinion like how i do it and cro school does it i don't know how aggressively i want to get into all all of that but yeah those are the two those are the two topics that i think would be maybe most most interesting and different. Excellent. Okay. So for, for those that are looking for more details about the counter methodology and the outputs of this CRO school that it, or mainstream thinking or filter bubble echo chamber, depending on which word we'd like to use, I would direct you straight over to repview.com, R-E-P-V-U-E.com. goes into lots of detail about both the factors that are or are not important to sellers and the current state of our profession. Specifically, I think the big one is, uh, Scott, that's dancing around in my head is that 52% of sellers hit their quota right now. And that number should absolutely be higher. And as a sales boss, if we're not sitting there looking at the numbers and thinking or contemplating about what that does to the psyche of your team on a regular basis, that's a problem. But anyway, so to to Scott's point, we have cooler, more more impactful things to discuss. So that said, Scott, 
You said two, right? So you toss it out. Where do you want to, and including go after my value judgments, just to get an understanding of the baseline, but, or the book, I have taken thorough notes and have deep conversations with almost every single passage in it, in the margins. So you choose. Let's start with the thing that's the, the thing that made you the most nervous, which is some of your experience with sales leaders. I assume wanting to be a force for good and change in that particular, that particular area. So let's eat the frog. Let's eat the frog. I love it. I love it. Okay. So there are two factors to it. I read John Maxwell's level of leaders, or I think it's called the five positions, whatever, five levels of leadership. The first level was positional authority. And so this can be parent, teacher, boss, anyone that, that uses that position, using that position to try to drive behavior change. And that was the lowest form of leadership. The reason why I bring it up is because I, I misinterpreted that book when I was reading it the first time in my early twenties. And I, I think what I, the way that I misinterpreted it was that I, I thought that you could be a leader without the position, technically speaking. And so I sought out to do those things. And I did that, I think very well, even while selling for a decade, I, I think I've trained over I a thousand like reps. You can, you got to be careful. And it sounds like you learned this, but you can read that passage and think, I don't want to be somebody that just is in charge because I have this title and you should respect me and do what I say because I have this title. And you overshoot the landing in the opposite direction. You're like, I just won't go for the title. I'll just be a leader. And I don't need that title. That. That's not exactly, oh, yes, I think, yes. the meaning of that, yes. which oh, yes. sounds like you figured out. Yeah. Well, yeah, a little. It's one of those, like, I'm thankful or I'm excited for all the people that figured out that later on in life, it was one of your posts about being your own boss. But some people take a little bit of, of time to get there. And what I'll credit, the reason why I went back to this passage was because I did one of Ryan Holiday's Read to Lead challenges mostly because I wanted to, so for those that are listening, there is one of the newer trends right now in adult learning or learning of any kind is uh, the challenge model, a daily challenge. And it's, it's sent in the form of an email every morning. And the beauty of it is that you can incorporate each of these activities into your day, right? You don't have to necessarily change your behavior so as to not take away from the precious selling time of reps. But anyway, one of the daily challenges was to go back and read an old book that you've read a while ago to, to counter or understand how the changes that we go through as human beings and how that impacts how we receive information. And so I don't think it was John Maxwell's book that I went back to reread, but I started going back to lots of them after I understood like, holy shit. And Scott, do you remember when you did the, I, I think it was Tequila Tuesday with the neuro-linguistic programming. That was another one oh, that yeah. I misinterpreted yeah. pretty hardly about. And I treat, I put a lot of the actions that I went through to like not feel anything into that neuro-linguistic programming. And so I associate that particular methodology with the, some of the more dramatic effects of my up close and personal experience with the mental health care system. But anyway, so there's that piece of it. And then the other piece was I, Scott, I don't think I've ever had great sales leader before. 
And I've been very close with like business unit heads, like for at Thomson Reuters, I was pulled in there by the director of our business unit off of Craigslist, interestingly enough, went on to become the VP because we finished at a thousand percent of plan that first year, but I've just never had that experience. And now maybe it was partially watching my dad be so great at it or Maybe it was my challenge with authority. Maybe it was my gender. I don't know. But I guess from a very early age, I knew that I didn't want to be a sales manager. Like I knew it deep down. And when I finished selling after 10 years, like I hit my annual quota in February, I was, I averaged 175% of plan for a decade. I, but that at that point I was frankly, I was pretty bored. And so trying to figure out what to do next without even giving myself the opportunity to think about sales leader as an option. I really, that's when I made a beeline for sales enablement now, which has been amazing and have built out two departments. But the more I study you, the more I study your FIDA program, the more I read your content and understand the work that you're doing and how you're doing it and why. And I look at all the gender stuff with this year, all the women that left the workplace and how important it's going to be to... Anyway, I'm confronting these value judgments in a fucking hard way, but I don't know. So that's where they came from. What say you, sir? I think the bar was probably set really high for you from your father in a good way. I think that certainly there's an element of rebellion or anti-establishment or whatever. And you're like, I'm going to reject authority. Like, I get that. get that for sure. And then you hang out long enough in, in sales leadership historically, like every single generalization, but you hang out long enough. It's like most people are in sales leadership positions are 40 to 50 something white men. And it's milk toast after a while. You get tired of having milk toast every single day. Boring. Same perspective. Not inclusive. Not creative. There's no, nothing changes. So I think you get you get tired of it. So if you combine all those three things, it's not hard for me as an outsider to look at it and see, well, I know why Amy doesn't like sales leaders or never had, felt like she never had a good one or one that was like for her or spoke to her, inspired her. Oh, um, can I add one thing to that? So sure. when I finished selling, I then I had a passion really for founders because of Thomson Reuters, like I call it the acquisition monsters. And I would just, I was even doing market research and looking at the landscape and feeding that information in. After that, I went to a company, I actually did some consulting in between again with startup founders, realizing that I had a heart for and the skills around go-to-market strategy and execution and process, all that shit. And so was actually pulled in-house as a chief of customer value, increased Kager by 450% in something crazy like 10 months. We were acquired and then went to San Francisco. And there was a lot of, after having done it already, even through to acquisition and any kind of variation, or it was hard in San Francisco. Like I just had Sean Shepard on the show because out of all the people that I met out there, he was like one of the only people that understand the good market stuff as and the importance between product and market fit to scale and, and succeed. And there wasn't a lot of that going on. And so I just, I saw the trickle down effects of that thinking and that filter bubble as well as it relates to the tech space. That, that was the other piece too. Yeah. But I think it doesn't mean 
but they don't exist. And that's the challenge for, and that's a challenge for people who have had bad experiences in with leadership, bad experiences in relationships, bad experiences in their love life, right? Mm-hmm. Just because had a lot of bad things happen doesn't mean that there's not the opposite end of the of the spectrum, that there's not good leaders out there, that there's not somebody who can be the right kind of friend for you or the right kind of significant other for you. And it's hard for people to maintain the faith in that and stay positive and keep trying and not just check out and say, fuck it and, you know, put up a permanent hard shell. But if you stick around long enough, hopefully you find somebody or a group of people to soften your stance a little bit and make you reevaluate the value judgments, as you said, and they start to show you what a different way looks like. And if you can build some type of colleague-like business relationship, mentor-like relationship, you learn from them and you learn what to look for in others. And all of a sudden, well, there's, it's not just this person. There's also that person over there. There's also this over here. And you can start to change a little bit in, in, how, in how you look at the, the, the leadership world, the business landscape world, and the world in, in general. Again, it's not doesn't mean that it's easy. Wait, so are you saying that our, our brains are capable of change, that neuroplasticity yeah. is a thing and it actually can happen a lot faster? Shocking, <laughs> Shocking right? Yeah. Oh my it God. Does fast. What, one, of the, one of the things that I got asked a long time ago, and I've since used this in interviews, is tell me something that you believe to be true that most people believe to be false. And my answer for a long time was that it takes people a long time to change. I don't believe that. I, I believe that we can make dramatic changes instantaneously, overnight, whatever adjective you want to use. I remember being a kid and my grandfather used to be a heavy smoker. Uh, it was in the military and families in the mafia, like all this crazy stuff. And, and it used to drive my grandmother nuts. And uh, this one day, my, my grandmother tells my grandfather, they're probably in their 60s at this point in time, you need to quit smoking or I'm going to leave you. And I'm not like, I'm not playing like it's that level of seriousness. And he quit smoking the next day, never had another cigarette the rest of you know his life. And that was 20 plus years, cold turkey, been smoking for 40 years prior to that, probably. And I... I that story is funny to me on a family kind of level, but it always illustrated like the, the motivation is there. You could change your behavior, the way you think, addictions, you could change whatever overnight. I certainly thought back on that. I, I was in the hospital for four years, got fed liquid morphine and Oxycontin and every opioid that there is. And when I was done with like my actual health issues, I had this drug issue. I'm like, well, fuck that. I don't even want to take an Advil anymore. So I cold turkey off, uh, off opioids. Yeah. So <clears throat> you can make changes. So, if you've had a bad boss forever and you think bad bosses is all there is, you meet one person that can change your mind about all that. And you have the ability to shed that belief that there's no good bosses 
and embrace the new one. No, but so just distinction, sales bosses, sales bosses in particular. Sales bosses. So it's funny because I, I, I actually pulled from, well, to the point about changing and changing fast, what's fun and interesting is that the science is starting to catch up. And there was a quote, there was a, a passage out of that mental health article for Sales Hacker last year where I, I forget her name, her Jennifer, she was a PhD out of Stanford and she wrote a book called Biased. And it talks about neuroplasticity and how the brain is capable of changing and how quickly it happens. And it go, I go deeper into that, but it's the science to back up exactly what we're saying now also exists too. So you can see it on a brain scan and we can see it happening in real time. And when we're pushing people outside of their comfort zone, like these are where the new neural pathways are being created. And so I, for anybody that's interested in looking into that or digging into that, it's definitely out there for those that are, have the intent, which is actually interestingly enough where I'm pivoting to Scott, I haven't ever wanted to challenge this perception. Like I didn't think I needed to, I thought I could. And by the way, for me, it was never about like myself being harmed because I, <laughs> as someone that spent a decade, like mastering the art of not giving a shit, not caring to the point where I couldn't feel anything like I it was always more about like seeing the harm that was being dished out around me and to sellers that maybe. And so I, anyway, even going into sales enablement, but I, I guess the point of what I'm trying to say is that I didn't want to challenge these value judgments until late, uh, like until very recently. And you were almost single-handedly responsible for bringing me to this moment. And so it, it's, yeah, that, that's the thing. And then the second piece, I think, for others that would impede our ability to execute on this idea that talent and learning and growth is possible and possible to happen quickly is this idea that talent is like a scarce thing. And I we can look at Daniel Coyle's The Culture Code, or not The Culture, The Talent Code. And obviously, I don't think that there's anything that could possibly be more false, right? That talent is a scarce thing that people are born a certain way and that's all there is to it. And But that still tends to be the primary mindset, even on sales floors. Like we got to look for a certain type of human and they've got to be extroverted and whatever, fill in the blanks. And frankly, the only thing that I look for is that someone is eager and hungry to learn and grow and develop. And then the rest of it falls into the, into, into line. But what would you say to that? Part of the challenge is that one's desire to help somebody learn <clears throat> is often incongruent with the goals that are pushed down upon you from a company level, from a board level. Mm -hmm. So you end up with some sales leaders who don't care about developing people whatsoever because they're just, I got to hit this number and that's all that there is to it. And then others who would love to take the time to develop people, but they just feel like they can't and they're trapped and they don't know how to break out of the cage and buck the system, if you will. And then you end up with others who slow things down and say, yes, board and CEO, I understand I need to hit numbers. The way I'm going to hit numbers is by ignoring you to some degree and bringing in people 
who want to learn, who will work hard to learn, who have great attitudes, this kind of thing. And I'm going to spend my time coaching them up. I'm not going to spend my time in shoot the shit meetings with you and the rest of the executive team where we have these strategic conversations and feel super fucking self-important. That's not a good use of my time. My time should be spent in the trenches, digging ditches with my salespeople, showing them how it's done, encouraging them, strengthening them along the way. That will actually work. It's funny, as I'm telling this story, I'm, I'm thinking about the movie The Matrix because I, I just watched... This the, is my favorite movie, Matrix. by the way. You're, you're, I just watched the Matrix my love language. trilogy. My, just watched the Matrix trilogy with my kids who are 13 and 11. It's the first time they've ever seen it. Okay. And I'm thinking about the scene where Keanu Reeves, Neo, he just sticks his hand out. No. And all the bullets just like drop. Mm-hmm. And on some level, that's the image that's going on in my head because you hear all this stuff when you're a sales manager or a VP of sales or whatever from the CEO, from the CFOs, COO the board, the VCs, the system in, in, in general. And it's all this noise. It's everybody coming at you. You got to hit this number. You got to do this. We got to close this. How are we going to get to this? We got to do more. Congrats. You did 40% above goal last month. We need to do 75% above. It's just so fast. And somebody just taking shots at you all day long. And a lot of people are just reactionarily trying, trying to like dodge all these bullets. And the right thing to do is be like, listen, my hand is out like Neo now. Stop. Just stop with all that noise. Here's what I'm going to do. And those are the kind of sales leaders in particular that I think figure it out and do really well and get lots of people to want to come work for them. And the ones that do work with them want to continue working with them. And when they leave and go to another company, those folks are devastated and they're like, hey, Scott, can I go work where you are next? That's the image that's going on in my head. So you have to be confident enough to say to the ones above you, listen, I know you want me to hit numbers. That's what I'm here for. I'm going to hit numbers. I'm just going to do it this way by spending time with these people and teaching them how to be successful. That requires a lot of effort, a lot of patience a lot of care and concern. And these things are on short supply in sales leaders who are run ragged by trying to dodge all these bullets of all the pressure. It's not in short supply of people who remember at the end of the day, we're all human beings. We're all ultimately trying to do well and be successful. Uh, And we all just need a little encouragement and support to get there. And oh, by the way, if we fail, who cares? Who, like, what is the world going to end? You will be okay if you don't hit your quota. You will be okay if you get fired from your job for not hitting your number. If you fire me as a VP of sales, oh, what's the worst thing that can happen? I'll go get another job. There's, when you've had life experience to show you like what hell is really, you've been through certain things, like missing your number and pressure from a boss doesn't really feel like that big of a deal anymore. And hopefully people don't have to go through hell in terms of health scares and things like that to, to recognize that and they can get there on their own. But it sure helped me. 
and allowed me, I think, to have the confidence to say to people, nah, stop. stop. I'm going to do it this way. It's so funny. I So I think that's what it's like to learn how to thrive as an IC, especially for like a anything beyond a transactional sale. So I, in your book, I'm laughing. I love the line about, do we, I know I need to hit the number. Do, like, do you really need to tell me three times a week, every week? Can you just stop? And so that was excellent. But that's part of what learning how to thrive as an IC is, especially in the current landscape. It's to silence the noise and all of the misinformation or too much information and to hyper-focus in on your buyer's problems and your buyers and what they need and their pain points and, and how to get there. And I'm going to, oh, damn it. Like one of my favorite papers in college, I wrote it on the matrix and I was obsessed with this movie. I think I've owned it probably like 10 times, even the VHS. I burned through it from watching it so many times, but one of my first and papers where I had an opportunity to write on a movie, that was the one. And so I, I could go deep into even as the cinematography and the color changes and gets brighter and lighter with his own enlightenment, my goodness gracious. Okay. So anyway, I, I don't see, maybe I want to see the similarities between being and thriving as an IC versus being and thriving as a sales leader. Or I just, I think of my journey and what it was like to learn to sell and to get better and understand the strategy aspects of things and how to measure. So we, I sold information at the end. So like you're mapping business decisions, you're in order to do ROI for high-end information like that, you need to literally prove out that the business decisions that are made are superior to the ones before because the information is better and more people have access to it. And it's been designed in a ubiquitous manner. And so timing is also a factor. And so there's a ton of taking down silos and helping people to understand and map their processes and to make them tighter and better. And I don't know, I guess I'm still, I, I kind of push back on this idea that the skills that, that we can acquire as an IC or inferior, or maybe not as leadership-esque as the sales leader, but I don't know if this is the right place to have that conversation. Like, what do you think? And I think even, you know what, there was one point in your book where I wrote disagree, just one, which is uh -oh. a big statement right there. That's not bad, actually, that you went through a whole book of mine and only had one disagree. I know, I know. What, is, what, is it, what does it say? That, that you so it's in, the kick out, it's in the kick out your ego section. And I it said, I'm just going to read the whole thing, uh, or at least the two paragraphs to give the context. It's chapter four, legacy. To do everything I've described here, it's incredibly important to get your ego out of the way. I obviously agree, can't agree more. You can't go into sales leadership if you're looking for all the glory and all the credit. That's one of the reasons why the number one salesperson very rarely makes a great VP. In order to be the best salesperson out there, you've got to be a bit self-centered. That myopic focus is what makes you so great at what you do, but it becomes really hard to transfer that focus when your performance is no longer measured by just you. It's funny. I'm glad you listened to the Mercy episode because she and I started talking about this, that it was what it, I like the way that I felt about showing up for the buyers. And, and so I specialize in category defining. I find myself to get very bored with like turnkey or transactional. And so anyway, the buyers and the buying teams that were buying into me and the yeah, but you're thinking about selfish 
I think you're hung up on the word selfish. You correct me if I'm wrong here. You're thinking about selfish and thinking, I'm, I'm not selfish. Like I'm very customer focused, buyer focused. And yeah, there was no hitting my number consistently without yeah, being in it for the buyers. But that's, but that's not what I'm talking about. Okay. I'm talking about selfish in terms of inside my organization with my time. So if I'm an individual contributor and then the best of the best individual contributor, a lot of people don't spend time sharing what's worked for them or what is working for them with their colleagues that they're competing against. And they're not doing all this extra kind of stuff internally. And that is very common. Why do you um, think that is? Most ICs. Now, and so here's, you're right. You're spot on and it's an excellent point. You're also talking to somebody that created two different standing peer-to-peer meetings, right? At different places, even before sales enablement, so that peers could have a safe place to both communicate their wins yeah. and their losses. On your show with Richard Harris, I talk about how pushing back on sharing the tactic of using public records requests to pull lead lists of companies that were hit with time and labor violations. And the guy that was mentoring me was like, don't share it with the team. And I was like, we're in different territory. And so I shared it with the team. Yeah, but I, you're but you're an you're an exception. I'm an anomaly. And yeah, yes. and there's always an anomalies and exceptions to the rule. But but, but generally speaking. So back so one have- one last thing, Scott. So when you touched on it when you said there's a competitive nature to not sharing. Where do you think that competitive culture and environment came from that impedes the desire to show up for peers? Some of it, I I wonder if it's just cultural. That's a bit of the American kind of way of thinking. We got to be number one and we look out for ourselves and to hell with whatever else happens. My my wife is, uh, is Danish and Swedish. That's not the way that they operate over there. They don't think about that. Mm-mm. Being number being number one at the expense of anybody else is, is not interesting or appealing to them. But I think a lot of that is is how America operates, you know. And it's not that individual contributors are like proactively anti-colleague or do anything to like push them down or whatever. But they keep a few things close to the chest that are working, you know, for them. And even if they're not doing that, it's just, listen, I don't want to do all this other stuff. I have a job to do. I'm going to do my job. And then I'm going to check out. I don't have time for any of this other stuff. And that doesn't translate when you go into to sales leadership. It can't work like that. So, so I guess what, so I love that. I think you're spot on with the culture, but there are still teams, right? And I'm with you on selling as a team sport, like big time. And I also think I'm excited about the uptick of the coaching conversations that, or at least conversations about coaching on sales floors. But I, there's a big difference between being able to coach an individual and not coach an individual. And similarly, there's a there are certain skill sets required to coach a team of people and to create a an environment, even a competitive environment that doesn't tip over into toxic between peers. And so I I, 
I think even on that one, why aren't I see sharing with one another? Maybe it's because the the toxic state of the sales floor that is using dashboards, right? Incessantly without the human aspect. And maybe there's not enough messaging communicated on how selling is a team sport. And the lack of sharing between peers is an output of those environments and also a, a sales boss that doesn't have the skills to coach a team. Well, you're asking why those things e- exist. Yeah, I'm just saying that that could should, be a possible it's, reason. It's definitely, it's definitely a part of it. Look at the way that the compensation models work at most places. You, you have, let's say I'm the VP of sales. Stereotypical organization. I got three, four sales managers. Each of them have 10 reps, right? I have a goal that's the whole organization. That's my number. Sales managers often, their goal is only the sum of their 10 reps. That's it. So they get paid often based on how those 10 reps do, not how everybody else does, not how the whole organization does, the whole company does. So we're incentivizing them to care mostly about their purview. That's it. Alternatively, you could have a sales organization where I'm the VP of sales. I got five managers, 10 reps apiece. I have this particular number and I tell my sales managers, all of you have the same number as me. So your job is specifically to try to wow. help these people, these 10 people, but part of your compensation is going to be a, a team number. All of your compensation, all of not it. part of it. Wow. You've done this and before? So, yeah. This is what I did at my organization because I wanted managers to not strictly be focused on helping just the people who sat under them. Wow. I don't want a situation where the rep on the other side of the room is closing a deal and the manager on this side of the room is pissed off that their reps are not closing a deal and therefore they're not getting paid. I want the manager to look on the other side of the room and be like, fuck yeah, boom, we're one step closer. Now you can't coach everybody. Can't, you can't manage all 50 people. So I'm still going to give you like 10 people under your charge but I've now incentivized more collaboration, teamwork, all for one, as opposed to this, I got to take care of myself first. Mindset. And I, I didn't always do this. 20 years ago when I first got started, I didn't have it set up that way because I just didn't know any better. I did what everybody else was doing. And I can remember a sales manager saying to me one time in, in response to me, because I was saying, hey, listen, like we, we got to keep pushing. We're not at our number yet. And I remember the sales manager saying, well, I'm at my number. And I thought to myself, I'm never fucking having wow. this set up again. Never. <laughs> wow. Right. Wow. So I'm going to create this socialist kind of sales floor. And that's what I did. And, okay. and, and it worked really well. It, it worked really well. Where's the chapter on this in your book, please? Number one. Number two, I can only write so much, I, Amy. Yeah. So I helped some, so there was a a gentleman that was whatever his name is Tim Corcoran. I helped him 
design a compensation redesign practice in law firms. So if you think about access to justice and all the things that prevent whatever, having the billable hour model that incentivizes everyone to take as long as humanly possible to do every single task. So the way to go after that or to elevate quickly is to look at the comp plan. Very, it's very complicated, obviously, when it's a little bit different. However, designing this compensation practice for and with Tim and helping him to scale it. Like that was one of the most impactful actions that I had ever taken to expedite the pace of change on that big law side of the house. And I'm thinking like, damn it, I got to get, I got to get Tim in here. His website is called bring in Tim. Actually he changed it, I think. But anyway, so he's been a CEO, like a VP of sales, obviously. Wow. That's insane. We need to, okay. Who else is doing that? Have you, do you know of many? I don't know, but I know that I've been talking about it and sharing my perspective on it and how and why I did it um, with everybody that I have conversations with who are sales leaders right now or looking to be sales leaders through my Patreon group, Which Thursday Night Sales, Surfing Sales, some of the content that I write on, on LinkedIn. So the word gets out there a little bit. I'm only one person. And hopefully the people who are implementing similar things, they get emboldened to share a little bit and do things a little bit differently. You get what you measure. So if I'm going to measure by sales managers, by contributions of only the people underneath them, the managers are going to have a selfish kind of outlook because they're carried most, caring mostly about how they're going to get paid. And that's what's modeled <laughs> so down. And that. Yeah. And that trickles on, trickles on down to the reps, right? And again, it requires an incredible amount of patience, effort in terms of pouring yourself into other people and trying to develop them and coach them up, the discipline, doing things the same way over and over in a non-self-serving way and in a way that doesn't necessarily reward you quickly. It's easy as an IC to do the same things over and over because you can get more instantaneous results for yourself. It's a lot harder to do things over and over for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten other people who have different speeds of delivering you the feedback of whether or not it's working. So you could sit there as a leader and be like, oh, fuck, I'm doing this thing. I told Amy how to do this like 47 times. Like, How many times is she going to get it right? I got to keep trying right, until she's no longer here. A lot of top individual contributors don't have that kind of patience and that kind of the true desire to develop somebody and, and help them grow. For anyone that's interested in learning, the base of the learning period pyramid, which is a it's a breakdown of different tactics that we can all do to learn things. The base, so think triangle, right? The biggest part, ninety percent of what we teach to other people is what gets retained. This is the other reason, Scott, why I'm so insistent on peer-to-peer -peer meetings. And it's funny though, I think you just, this is a perfect place to end this because what you just, just shared about other sales leaders that are doing it or starting to do it, like that's the the tipping point, right? Moving us towards that yeah, well, they gotta, point. I mean, but, first you gotta get, you gotta get the word out there. But so, this know. is why I want to, this is the biggest reason why I'm thinking about sales leadership now because I've gotten that Neo stop <laughs> pretty almost too much to know. Maybe it's a little bit of overcompensating. And so we're going to rein that back in. However, I like 
pointing at best practices. I like pointing at so um, socializing bright spots, not just pointing at, but this was how I opened up opportunities. I would pull in one of my best clients or prospects that had gone through buying motion and implemented all this stuff. And then the two of us would present and yeah, shit, man, that's pretty fucking baller. Okay. So <laughs> looking at the clock here, two final questions, the, the one's a questions, one's a piece of advice, but, and I'll give them to you both now. So the first is what's the hardest conversation? most uncomfortable conversation, whatever, that you've ever had to have in a revenue context ever. And so this could be, you know, boss, employee, hiring manager, board, CEO, spouse, it doesn't matter. And then the second is one piece of advice about uncomfortable conversations for the experienced tech seller. You know, I think that the hardest conversations have been when somebody has tried to tell me that I can't do something just because I've never done it before. And the, the reason is, and I've talked about this many times, but there's this can do versus has done dichotomy. And so I remember saying to people who would say that stuff to me, of course, I've never done that. I haven't had a chance to do it yet. So how would you like for me to check that one off my has done box? So you're not going to give me up, give me the opportunity to do that. And this is very common with sales leaders because you get topped off because, Oh, Scott, you're the guy who gets people from zero to 10 million, or you're the guy that gets people from 10 to 50 million or whatever. And what always seems to happen is we're going to bring in somebody else who's taken a company, you know, public before you've never taken a company public before. We don't know if you're the right man for the job anymore. Those conversations are highly uncomfortable, super frustrating, difficult to detach emotionally from difficult to not take personally and not necessarily like a good, clear or clean answer. Because in some cases, people, the, the founders and the board, they might be right. That person might not be the right person to take them to a hundred million or to IPO or whatever. In other cases, it might be totally wrong. And that person's completely deserving of a shot and has earned the right to, to keep it going. Th those have been the toughest conversations for me personally. My, my advice to people about my advice to experienced sellers about difficult conversations is simply to have them and not avoid them. Avoiding difficult conversations, I think eats you up inside. And that manifests itself in a lot of negative ways. Stress, stuffing down feelings and emotions that lead to non-healthy, intelligent behavioral decisions or choices. And to me, is oh, I gotta have this tough conversation. Same thing I said earlier, let's eat the frog. What do you want? What's the hardest topic you wanna talk about? Let's do that first. Start with it, yeah. I got it. You got to go have it. So if it's a conversation about how you're being treated, if it's about your compensation, if it's about your career path, if it's about a client that should be yours still and somebody else has snaked it from you or something like that, whatever the topic is, I think you got to have it. You got to go have that conversation because holding it inside, stewing about it, I think just wrecks you and causes more damage than just having the, the difficult conversation. You know, 
I feel you on the experience thing, because if we look at the numbers, that's something that's held over females more so than with men. And that is, yeah, that's a massive one. Also, they say to your, your later point that pain is inevitable, but suffering is a choice. And the suffering that goes into thinking about and avoiding and like pondering every yeah. worst case scenario, that's all self-inflicted. And so you're spot on, you're spot on. Listeners, my goodness gracious. So more than a number, the modern VP sales playbook is fucking awesome. It breaks down a bunch of things that I've never seen written about. I love the part, the section, Scott, where you're talking about different departments and working with different departments mm -hmm. like finance, like product and engineering, like HR, and how if sales doesn't win, nobody wins. But more importantly, there's wins in building that relationship. Anyway, I don't even want to give away the secret sauce, but I, I especially the product and the engineering, like Product market fit requires lots of different specializations, tech and non-tech alike, even though I despise referring to a group of people by what they are not. However, Scott, I've never seen it written out like that. And that was fucking beautiful. The other thing that was beautiful and spoke to my soul that I just wanted to put out there was that post about how you thought about your career choices and the income that you can earn and mm -hmm. I, I saved this one as you own most of the saved LinkedIn posts in my universe over there. And so I, it was just a beautiful breakdown of how, when we see something and think it's possible, then, you know, the how to go about getting it just manifests or it doesn't manifest, but it's like certainly is a secondary aspect to believing it's possible. And so I, I know I'm not speaking just for myself with the amount of belief that you've breathed into me and to the profession. And in so many different ways that you're empowering people to learn and to grow and to aspire and to make things better for sales floors and for them and also for themselves. And so just as a big, and on the off chance, oh, you, you haven't heard it during this very special birthday week of yours, please allow me. And yours. Thank you, Scott. And Lise. yours. Thank you for the may time. We both, may, may we both have a good birthday. Woo. Oh my gosh. All right. Have a great day. And listeners, truth, love, and joy, friends. Thank you for listening to the entire show. Happy selling. Bye, Scott. Bye, Amy. Man, that was heavy, but necessary, important stuff being thrown around. Virtues that we as humans can build a sturdy foundation on. I heard words like trust. I heard words like action. I heard words like consistency. And I think this is important, but I, I also live in the real world where I trust that the action Amy didn't take was to consistently feed the dog or file her legal disclaimer paperwork from all the unnecessary risks she takes on a weekly basis. Karen is going to be pissed. Karen! All right, friends. The only way this works as a hotline is if we find some people to come play. Anybody who's interested or brave enough or desperate enough, because let's be serious, that's where it's at. Everything you need to know is in the show notes. Yeah, call, absolutely. Call in. Don't have enough to do? You want a couple of books to read? Amy can boss you around for a couple hours? 
Yeah, please, by all means, call. If you like what you're hearing or are excited for this shit show and where it's going to go, definitely follow us on whatever podcast device is your preference, even though I seriously have a hard time identifying with anything non-Spotify. I guess I'll come to terms with that. If you find any value in things that we're talking about, do tell a friend. I consider that the highest honor. Of course, there's always the public review of any kind, although part of me thinks that I should not ask that until we're out of beta. Just a note for sponsors from Karen and Pete down in Legal. We are anxious to receive your call. And if you are looking to help or join the cause or create change in a positive way, please reach out to anyone but me because I have enough to do. And Amy will definitely be interested in taking your money to help more people, which is what we do here. You know, stuff. Legal stuff. It's pretty crazy. I still can't believe people listen to shit I say. Yeah, like there's certainly a kernel of truth somewhere in there. It's just, it's wrapped up in a story. Order the dog food, Amy. Order it. Chewy.com. Possible sponsor. Lola, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, baby. I love you. Here, take some pets. Come sit up on my lap. I don't know about you listeners, but I enjoy my podcast on Stitcher. I don't have a premium account because I'm holding out for sponsorship. Hey, Stitcher, looking at you. Also, I believe we mentioned Chewy, so there will be a link to them in the show notes, even though we are not sponsored by them, and I bought my dog food at Target this week because it was on sale and I saved on shipping. All right, friends. Thank you for listening to the conversation. For more ridiculousness, check out the extended cut of the outro. And that's a wrap. I can't. So this is Pete, your disclaimer specialist, coming to you at the super secret disclaimer portion of the show because this is a pod about transparency and difficult conversations. And with everyone being so open and honest, I must be. So here goes. As the outroer to the outroe, I'm sorry. I apologize. I misled you intentionally. As your attorney, I must confess that I am not a fucking attorney. <laughs> I have not passed the bar exam in the state in which I live. I have never represented anyone well in anything, let alone in a court of law. But again, these are difficult conversations that Amy's having with her guests, and, and I lied. And I should tell you that. I should be open and honest, because we have been. So we can all be better. We can all do better together. And now I'm just rambling at this point. It's just, who cares? It's an outro, right? This is just going to fade into blackness, like the Mars rover. Maybe a little bit less sad. That was fucking sad. Oh, let's not be that sad. Come on, guys. We can do better.